Well, good morning. So before we dive into the word, let's just open with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you that we have this time um, to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper today. We just thank you for the price you paid that um, you washed us white as snow. And I pray that you would help us focus our hearts as we um, learn more um, about communion today. In uh, Jesus' name, amen. So, as I said, just said in the prayer, we're going to be learning about communion today. Um, So, I'm doing the next few communions, at least, and um, I thought it'd be a good idea that we learn more about communion, um, so we have a full understanding when we come to the table. And so, I really want to, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22 today, Um, but before we get there, we have to talk about a few things. Um, And first of all is the relationship between communion and Passover. And so the very first thing is Christ instituted communion at the Passover meal. So we're going to take a look at Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, um, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will, you will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, right? So that is the institution of the Lord's Supper, right? And it happened at Passover, as it says. And so the thing we have to know is God instituted Passover, um, and he did this when he delivered the Israelites from their 400 years um, bondage from Egypt, right? And Passover celebrated God passing over the houses um, whose doorposts and lintels were smeared with the lamb's blood, as you could read in Exodus 12, 7 through 14, to get a better picture. Now, I'd love to take the time to look at that, but you can do that on your own time. So Israel celebrated the meal to remember the Lord delivering them from the land of Egypt and bringing them to the promised land, okay? That is the Passover. And so you have the big picture here, right? The Passover foreshadowed Jesus' sacrifice. Um, The Passover was a physical deliverance of Israel in the Old Testament, right, from the land of um, Egypt, But the Lord's Supper celebrates the permanent and spiritual deliverance of the New Testament. We see that clearly in in verse 11, 25 in 1 Corinthians, which says, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? And so, so that's the first thing we have to talk about, is that relationship between communion and Passover. The second thing we have to talk about as we now get to 1 Corinthians 11, you can turn there with me if you'd like, is the Corinthian church, um, because that's who Paul is talking to. Now, Corinth was a main trading city. Um, And the thing is, it was a short piece of land, so you could either go over Corinth um, on a boat, through overland, they had a way that they could do that, um, or you could go around it, but to go around it was pretty much considered suicide because the waters were very treacherous. So many people would go through Corinth, um, and obviously that made it a very um, good trading center for them. 
So there was a lot that happened in Corinth. Uh, later, there was a canal that was created to make that a little bit easier. Um, there was a lot of entertainment in Corinth. The Olympian was held there, the Olympi- Olympian Games, that is. Um, and with all that entertainment also came corruption. Um, they were very uh, morally corrupt, even from a pagan standpoint, okay? They had the goddess Aphrodite there, um, the goddess of love, and it was up on a hill. Um, and just to give you an example of the corruption, there was a temple there, and the priestesses or the women would um, come down um, and sleep with the local and traveling men. Um, and so that kind of gives you a glimpse to just the kind of corruption that was there. They actually had their own word that meant to behave like a Corinthian. Uh, it was Corinthian, uh, Corinthia Zaite. So they had a big reputation for them, even from a pagan standpoint. And the thing is, with that moral corruption, it eventually affected the church, or it infected the church, I could say, to the point that there is even incest in the church. We read that in 1 Corinthians 5.1. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So that's the kind of corruption that was not only in Corinth, but also in the Corinthian church. So that brings us closer to our text. It brings us to chapter 11 and 1 verse 17 is the verse, or 1 through 16, I should say, are the verses leading up to it. And Paul is talking about the acceptable practices that the Corinthian church was doing, the good things, because in verse 11, 2, or chapter 11, verse 2, he says, I commend you, right? He is commending them on the things that they're doing, the things that they're doing well, holding the traditions. And he actually says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you, okay? And so then he talks about that for a while, and then that brings him to the subject of the Lord's Supper, Verses 17 through 22, that's what we're going to look at. And so let's just read that. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you might may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so, obviously, he is not liking what they're doing in regards to the Lord's Supper. My thought is, over the next few communions, we'll take a look at this, and then we'll take a look at the next verses, and then 27 through um, 34, to get a better glimpse of communion. And then really, in these verses in particular, we're going to see what we shouldn't be doing in communion. And so that leads us right to verse 17, which says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. 
And the thing is, he was instructing their behavior, right? The following instructions. Um, and this means to command or to give a charge or order. This instructions was actually what a military commander would say to his subordinates. And you might say, well, what's the, you know, so what? You know, why do we need to know that? It's important to recognize that because Paul is talking now from his apostolic instruction. He is a commander talking to his subordinates, right? This is no longer just Paul the friend. This is Paul, the leader of the church, talking to a congregation, the body of Christ. And the thing, he is not commending their behavior, right? Because beforehand, he was commending, in verse 2, as we talked about, for maintaining the traditions, right? But now he just puts that in the negative. I cannot commend you for this. And the last part of verse 17 is basically a summarization of the rest of this paragraph, which is, it is better... um, Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. He's just compressing everything that he has heard about the Corinthian church into one little statement there. Uh, He has heard that the church has humiliated and despised people in the church. You know, some are drunk, some are starving. This isn't a very good look for the church. And in the end, it would be better for them to not even come together. And so that's verse 17, and then we get to verse 18 and 19. And these are very interesting verses, because it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Right. And the thing is, he says, in the first place... There's never a second point or a third point. What he's doing there within the first place is putting emphasis on this. He wants them to really pay attention to what he is about to say in the first place. And then he continues on, right? So he's emphasizing his point. And the church here, just as point of reference, is assembly or congregation, the word ecclesia. You're probably familiar with it. It is not the physical building. It is the body of Christ, the people. And just as a point of reference, this is exactly the opposite of what the church should look like. Um, Really quickly, in Acts 2.44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's a better um, look for the church, right? That is what the church is supposed to be. They all believed, they were all together, and they had all things in common because they were all part of the same body of Christ. Um, That is not what we see here. Instead of seeing everybody together and having all things in common, we see divisions and factions among them. And so we need to talk about those two words, the divisions and factions, because it's pretty interesting, because in verse 18, it kind of seems like he's condemning divisions, but then in verse 19, it seems like he's almost encouraging factions. So how does that work out? First of all, divisions, right? The literal meaning for this is a tearing or a cutting, right? That's what they were doing to the church. They were tearing it. There can be a lot of different reasons for divisions. First of all, you're going to have, which Paul already had discussed earlier in his book, in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12, he talks about people following 
different people in the church, right? One ten through 12, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, right? So he's already had to deal with some divisions, right? That is the divisions of following different leaders in the church. And they're still, again, supposed to be part of that one body of Christ, But that's actually not really the division that he's talking about here, particularly in this um, chapter, in this paragraph. Because the one he's talking about here is more of an economic division. And we must remember the times, right? There's a lot of different people. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's Greek, there's Roman. um, There's the social elite, there's political leaders in the church, Um, as well as merchants and even slaves in the church, right? That's a broad range for a church. And so divisions, obviously, was a big problem in the church. Um, So that's what he's talking about here, that economic divisions. And we kind of can surmise that because some were hungry and others were drunk. Um, It would be the rich that were drunk, in this case, going ahead of their own meal and eating their own meal, and then the poor would be hungry, not even having food that they could bring for themselves. But we'll get into that in a bit. At the end of verse 18 there, and he says, and I believe it in part, right? Because he's acknowledging that some of the accounts that were given to him could have been exaggerated, right? Because he's relying on people to tell him what's happening in the church of Corinth. Maybe some of them were exaggerating, but... He's basically saying, I believe it. It's not that hard for me to believe. And the thing is, divisions in the church are terrible. And it is a sure sign of spiritual sickness in the church when there are divisions among people. So that's the first thing. There's divisions. But how about these factions in verse 19? And first of all, it says, there must be. That means it is necessary. Or it must be. That's literally what it means in the Greek. And this is the same word that's used of Peter and the apostles when they're told to stop preaching by the Sanhedrin, right? They say, we must obey God rather than men. And this word, um, this word in Greek, the must be, it's day, or die in Greek, it is often used in the New Testament to represent divine necessity, And so we really have to talk about this. How does it fit in this passage? How is it that he condemns division in verse 18, but then says there must be factions? Well, it is in order that those who are are genuine among you might be recognized. It is separating those who believe who do not believe, right? That is the ultimate goal. It's much like how we go through a trial And often we don't like those trials, but we come out stronger in the end, relying more on God. And it's kind of blowing that up to the church, right? Eventually, the church might have to go through these trials so that the spiritual leaders can come out through the church. The church can come out stronger. So the genuine or approved among you might be recognized, right? And that 
that genuine is a term used for precious metals tried in fire and proven to be pure, right? The genuine among you. But we have to be very careful here, right? Because factions, he's acknowledging, acknowledging that factions are necessary, right? They're going to happen eventually, especially in that church. Um, but they should never be left alone, right? To Titus 3, 10, 11, it says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Right? So he's not saying you must have factions, create factions among yourselves. He's just saying it will happen in some point. They are necessary and God will use those, um, but we can't leave those to their own demise. Because when a faction is left alone, it will create a division in the church. So that's verses 18 through 19. Then we get to verses 20 through 22. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The very main thing here is they were not eating the Lord's Supper, right? And the supper here is actually the general word for a meal, a general meal, right? But it is the Lord's added, that added the greater significance to the meal, right? It is the Lord's Supper. And at this point in time... They would have usually had a meal. This was like the normal thing to do. Um, they would have a meal, and then they would follow that up with communion. And actually, some people think that they had communion after every single meal. Um, but in the least, we can say that it was pretty often that they would do this. Um, these are the love feasts talked about in Jude 12. Um, but it is not the Lord's Supper that they were eating. Um, the thing is, they were making a mockery to what should be, uh, to what it should be, and so they could no longer call it what it was supposed to be. And the thing is, neither the meal they would eat beforehand or the communion were part of that, right? They weren't doing either one correctly. They were going through the motions but their heart wasn't in the right place. All they were doing was going through the motions, right? And it was so bad, it's hard to even picture it, it was so bad that some were drunk and others were hungry. It says each one goes ahead with his own meal, right? And this is basically the rich would come early, they would have their meal, they would eat it, and they would get to the point where they were even drunk. That's how much they were eating and enjoying themselves. You could say. And they would do this all before the poor could arrive, right? And the poor here were often slaves who would have to work, work for a certain amount of time. And by the time they were done and had got to the meal, the meal was pretty much over with and there would be nothing left. And so, 
And so they would go hungry. And it's very interesting because the ones who truly needed the food would go hungry. The poor would come expecting to be physically and spiritually fed, and they would be sadly disappointed because the others were already drunk. Um, And the thing is, this is just them making a mockery of the very reason of communion, to bring harmony and unity to the body of Christ, not even getting to the topic that they were drunk. Imagine that. Imagine the sickness in the church when you are sharing the Lord's Supper and some are starving while the others are drunk. It really shows you um, Corinth at the time, but it also shows you the Corinthian church at the time. This despised and humiliated the church, right? He says that, what, do you have no houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? At this point, you can really kind of, I like this passage because you can feel almost Paul's frustration with this. It just aggravates him to the nth degree. And he says, do you despise the church of God? Notice who he is implying is the church of God. Right, because they are despising the poor, the humiliated. That's who he's referencing to as the church of God. And it's the thing is, it's like they were purposely trying to divide the church by embarrassing the poor. And in the end, this is not something that Paul could commend them for doing, right? So he makes it clear again, right? Shall I commend you? In this, right? It's a rhetorical question. He knows the answer. He knows they know the answer at this point. Hopefully they can feel it from reading the letter. He says, no, I will not. Just to be super clear on the matter, (laughs) this is not something that he, that the church of God should be doing. But luckily, he gives them an easy remedy, right? And we're just going to briefly look at this, 33 through 34, right? So then, my brothers, when you come together eat uh, to eat, wait for one another. The answer is pretty simple. Just wait. You're probably not even waiting that long. Because it isn't about the waiting, right? It was their heart attitude about the other people. They didn't want to wait for the other people. They probably could have easily. If any was hungry... He kind of takes a little further, right? If anyone is hungry, just eat at home. (laughs) Simple solution. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Um, About other things, I will give directions when I come, right? So it's an easy remedy, right? Wait, Wait for one another and take away the temptation if you need to. Just eat at home. So you don't bring judgment on yourself, Luckily, when I was reading this, I was thinking, well, at least we don't have factions or divisions in our church, right? Um, this isn't a message that I created because I thought I saw a problem. This is just one that I felt the call to study this passage and preach it, and so I did. But when I was thinking about this, that doesn't mean we should be complacent in making sure we don't have divisions and factions among us, Right? Because that once we become complacent, it might happen. And I've actually been part of and know of many churches where there have been factions. Um, 
I've seen it in my youth group growing up. There was the kids that were cool and the kids that weren't cool. And so it can happen easily in the church, and we need to make sure it doesn't happen in the church. And particularly when I was thinking about it, it can easily happen today in particular, right? We have all the same problems that they do, right? There are people who are more wealthy, people who are more poor, maybe political leaders and all that kind of different things in the church in general, All the different things that can separate and cause division are here, and we need to make sure that we remain as one body in Christ. Um, And one of the biggest things right now is political division, right? There's even more temptation for it, so we need to make sure that we are one body under Christ, right? And so I have this quote that I really liked, and it's kind of long, but I feel like it kind of summarized it beautifully. And so it's John McCarthy who says, A Christian's attitude and motives should be pure at all times. But when believers come to the table of the Lord, sharing of the bread of his body and the cup of his blood, it is absolutely necessary that they leave behind all sin, all bitterness, all racial and sexual prejudice, all class pride, and all feelings of superiority. Of all places and occasions, those attitudes are most out of place at the Lord's Supper. They grievously profane that holy, beautiful, and unifying ordinance of God. Now that we are going to come together, let us come in a worthy manner, manner, our full attention on the new covenant of Christ. For together, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, right? And so let that, with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you that we had a chance to look at this text to see how we are in the least not supposed to come to the communion table. And I pray now that we would... Um, apply this, and we would come to the table in a worthy manner as one body in Christ, um, no divisions, with a pure heart, um, seeking to glorify your name. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Pastor Caden has uh, challenged us this morning from uh, the Word of God for us to realize the importance of making sure that we're not divided when we come before this table. Uh, for us to realize that this is not a meal like if you miss breakfast this morning, that this is going to get you through until it's time for lunch. It is meant to be a meal of remembrance for the sacrifice that was made. And so therefore, realizing what it's for, that we do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that we not be divided as to what it uh, it is, uh, as some, you know, even what it becomes. Um, this, this, the, the bread and the, the uh, juice that we take does not become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is a representation. Uh, it's something that we do to re- remember exactly uh, why blood needed to be shed. Uh, because the scriptures make it clear that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Uh, and that his body was broken. That he was on a Roman cross uh, as one who was... Uh, convicted as guilty, even though he did not sin at all, uh, whether in thought, word, or deed, uh, but did so in obedience to the Father. 
And so as we come and take this meal together so that we are united, as we are coming together to this table, that we need to remember uh, what Christ accomplished. That salvation uh, is a gift of God. Uh, it is not of works so that no one can boast. And that's something else that we take and we're unified in uh, as we take this meal together. Gracious Father, we do thank you for uh, the reminder of your broken body, uh, but also of your shed blood. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, your son, Jesus Christ, uh, before uh, eternity, uh, or before the beginning of time, uh, knew that he was going to offer himself as that once-for-all sacrifice, so that through faith and trust in him and him alone, uh, we can have the forgiveness of sins uh, and experience uh, eternal life, being freed from the bondage of sin uh, and, and spiritual death. And Lord, we do thank you for that shed blood, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today and trust that this time of worship has ministered to your heart and your mind and your soul. As you remember Christ's sacrifice today, may it define who you are, uh, not only for the rest of this day, but for uh, the rest of this week and for the rest of your life, uh, because Christ has come in and changed who you are. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you so that no matter what may happen in the world around you, no matter what may happen to you in your own life, uh, remembering uh, that God is with you always, uh, even until the end of the age.